Right. Good morning. I think it's been about two years since we were here, so it's been a little while. And this is the first place that we're stopping to share. So I'm sorry. That's just that's what I'm going to say. You guys are the guinea pigs. Uh, no, I just want to reiterate what Pastor Dan said. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. Um, but I would extend that to grandmothers and aunts and uncles, or aunts, not uncles. You don't count. Sorry. Um, but I was just thinking when Dan got up and he, he said that, it just made me think about where it talks about in the Word that we are to count those who are older as mothers and those who are younger as sisters. And I just think about the idea of the value of that and how all of you ladies have value and impact in those around you. And I know that like my wife's grandma had a huge impact in her life. And so keep praying and, and keep being intentional with those around you. So thank you, mothers. Um, I also want to start by saying to all the guests, I'm sorry. Don't judge the church based on me. I'm, I'm a guest here right now, too. So, um, But yeah. Um, so my name is Garen Dick. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my wife and three kids are here with us. And um, yeah, we're missionaries in Waukesha, Wisconsin. That's a big change from the last time I was here, because the last time I was here, we were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. And so I just want to start by sharing a little bit about what has happened in the last two years. I got a little Devo, and then I'll talk about our new ministry in Wisconsin, and and maybe a little bit of what the future holds. So uh, again, I'm sorry, mothers, this isn't like a great Mother's Day uh, uh, teaching lesson. So I hope you didn't come ready for that. Um, But... I'm not totally prepared. Let me find what I'm sharing here. Um, So the first time we were here was in 2016. We were fundraising, and uh, we we were looking at some pictures of that. My youngest daughter at the time was two years old, so that was like seven years ago. Um, And we fundraised. We did all that. We went off to PNG in 2017 uh, to be church planners. And during that time, we found teammates, we learned the national language for Papua New Guinea, um, and just, um, yeah, prepared to go out. We found teammates, which we were super excited about, Um, and we joined an existing work, which means there had been missionaries in there already, the work was already started, and we came in and joined that work. Uh, The work that we joined, it was called the Bali People Group. In Papua New Guinea, don't be confused with Indonesia. This is not Bali, Indonesia you know, tourist town, yachts, and great resorts. No, this is like out in the middle of the Bismarck Sea. Uh, Yeah, totally different. I mean, if you want to go there, you could, but not quite the same. Uh, So we joined this team. This team had significant history there, and I don't mean significant in a good way. It had pretty negative history. Uh, The previous team that was there had huge conflict. Uh, It damaged the people that we were there to minister to. We weren't a part of that team, but our partners were, and it was just people, like village people, the village was divided because of the fight between the two missionaries, so very, very destructive. That was in 2013, 14. Our teammates were the only ones that stayed after a lot of drama and fighting, Um, and then they spent three years trying to find new partners, three years trying to do damage control in the village, and so Q 2018 in the summer, we show up. It's a good fit, Uh, really uh, just something we had been praying about for years and years that we would have a team because out of a healthy team, out of a healthy church, 
becomes healthy ministry. And so we'd been praying for years, and we feel like we had found that in these teammates. We joined the team, and basically immediately they had to leave on medical furlough. So that left us brand new in Papua New Guinea with a, a tribal work that had significant history. And uh, uh, yeah, that was extremely challenging. The last time we were here, we were on our first furlough from that, and, and we had been pretty wiped out. And COVID was going on at that time, 2020. Um, and so just, just crazy. But we came back, we rested, we refreshed. Our teammates, after two years uh, away from PNG, they, they had gotten enough medical help and whatnot. She had a thyroid disorder, autoimmune disorder, had her thyroid removed in order to be, be able to go back to PNG so that all she had to do was take medicine in order to stay, which was something they could get over there. Um, so they were back there. We were excited. We were like, yes, we're going to have teammates again. We're going to get back in the tribe. We're really going to get rolling because we hadn't moved in the year and a half. We were in the tribe by ourselves. We barely could move. We just barely survived. Um, and so we were so excited. We get back there on the tail end of significant drama again in the village that we worked in. The people had robbed all the houses that were there, uh, which is not uncommon with missionaries in Papua New Guinea. That's a very common occurrence for there to be theft, your house to get broken into. What was not common was the fact that the people who had done the stealing were threatening the life of other people in the village. It was an armed robbery. That's significant because it's basically you robbing your brother and threatening to kill him if he tries to stop you. They're all related. They're all family. And so it was very, very significant. It's not something they would do culturally normally. So it was just, it turned into this huge ordeal to the extent that six months after they started robbing us is when we first heard about it. And that's when people started fearing for their lives. And they called my teammate who was in PNG and said, you need to get the cops out here, which is a whole other dramatic story that really isn't the best situation in Papua New Guinea. Um, but we did. We got them out there. We had to pay for the cops to go out there and to do all their stuff. And pretty much the way it goes is the same people who asked for the police to come out were then hiding the people who had robbed us from the police. So, And then the police had to basically, after a few days of searching and talking to all the leaders of the village, the leaders who are hiding their kids who robbed us, the police have to go, okay, listen, tomorrow morning, we're going to go around, we're going to shoot every pig we can find, and we're going to burn down 13 houses. The next morning, guess what? The suspects showed up. Everybody turned them over because that's just pretty much how it works. The cops have to go to such extreme lengths in order to get justice. Um, 13 guys were arrested. Just a big, it's never good. Um, they got, went to court, got pretty small sentences. They were asking us, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to, to sentence them? And it's like, whoa, hold on. Like, that's your job, not ours, because what will happen is we say, yeah, we want them, you know, we want years in jail or we want this or that. They turn around and they'll blame it on us. And that's what it was. It was an opportunity for them to blame shift the foreigners, and so we were like, no, nah, just give them whatever, and uh, so they gave them minimum sentences, um, so that was all there. We show up right on the tail end of that, um, and our partners are there. We're, we're excited to go back. We know we're going to have to do some damage control, um, but that's just part of it, but shortly after getting back, our partners had to make the tough decision for a second time and, and more final to say, you know what, we're not, we're not going to be able to go back to the tribe. The medical conditions 
just didn't make it possible to return. There was just a stress-related injury, basically, that when they got exposed to certain situations, it triggered them and basically put them in bed for two weeks. It put, it put one of them in bed for two weeks, which is not, it's not conducive to tribal church planning, you know, to learn language and stuff where you got to be running every day if you can only work two weeks out of a month. Um, so they made the very hard decision to go, okay, we're not, we can't go back to the tribe. But they wanted to stay there and, and keep working um, in Papua New Guinea. So that was, that was hard. It was like losing our teammates all over again. Um, so that happened. We were like, oh, no. And then my teammate was like, all right, I'll go into the tribe with you because we needed to go in and do a little damage control and figure out what's going on with the people. What is the temperature of the people? Um, we deal with the, the Bali people are a rather aggressive people. Um, they, they're violent towards each other, you know, um, very loud and obnoxious in our standards, very rude in our standards, but that's just the way they are culturally. So he and I chop her in. We go back with all the appropriate things to say sorry because in that culture, even though we were the victims, we have to say sorry. So we're ready to go back and say, hey, sorry that you broke into our house and stole our stuff. Um, that's just what you got to do. And so we're ready to do that. We're going back. And we get back. We have a plan to be there for three days. And uh, we didn't make it 23 hours. We get there, and immediately there's a drunk guy, which is not uncommon. And he's yelling and screaming at us. And the people start coming and apologizing for that, which they don't normally do. Come to find out, this is the son of the local bone doctor, witch doctor, basically. And he was one of the guys who had been arrested and charged for robbing us. And he was drunk, and he was angry at us. So I was like, okay, that's not the best sign of the temperature of the village. The next sign was we get in there, and some of the leaders of the village who we were friends with aren't coming to our house now. As we're there sitting down with all the other leaders, these guys are not coming back, which is a clear indication they're not happy with us or they're feeling shamed or embarrassed, which all of that can lead to bad stuff. So we're like, okay, you know, not going so hot so far, and we sit down with the leaders, we're talking about stuff. Just the whole scenario was weird compared to, to, to times we've been there. And come the evening, it's like we all sit down again on the campfire, we're chatting, and you get a government official from the island. He comes out, and of course he's drunk, because that's their excuse for airing their problems. You know, they get drunk or kind of drunk, and then they yell and scream and fight. And he comes out into the middle of the soccer field, which is right by our house, and he starts giving a, a uh, I want to say talk savvy, that's, that's talk pigeon, a, a, a public announcement regarding us. These guys are terrible. They, they shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be supporting them. Like, if you're supporting them, you're not one of us, and this and that. And he starts throwing big rocks at our house, which is not uncommon also. That happens. Uh, what, what is a little uncommon is that he was giving a very clear public announcement. Normally when they're drunk and they're angry, their vocabulary shrinks to about three swear words. And that is not an exaggeration. They come through the soccer field swearing the whole way through. And uh, this guy was there for 45 minutes telling everybody how bad we were. And the guys we were sitting down with, normally they ignore the drunk people, but they just went dead silent. And they're listening to this guy. And it's like, this is weird. And I was down there with him. I said, guys, what's going on? What is he saying? And they wouldn't tell me what he was saying, which was like, that's kind of weird also. And then... My teammate, who has been there for longer and who has been through so much more than me, 
and knows the culture there so much better than me, comes down from upstairs, and the he, he, first thing he says to me is, it's like, do you want to call the chopper? And that was like, what? Like, that is like huge red flag right there. Like, if he wants, if he's think, if that's in his mind, that means something that is going on is very, very bad. It's very extreme. And he knew the language a little bit, and, and I don't know that he translated everything for me, but basically, we came to a place where it's like, this could turn really ugly really fast. Because those old divisions, that old um, anger from that original team still existed. There were people that hated my teammate for no other reason that they were friends with the other side of that argument. They were friends with the other missionaries. And they took offense for those other missionaries, and they hated our teammates for that reason. So you had that, and then you had this recent, they're angry because they got arrested for robbing us. And you had all of this stuff, and so we have our supporters, and then you have all the other people. And it was like, there's a chance there could be a fight over this. Not necessarily our lives being in danger, but someone's life could be in danger. So at that point, we had to make the decision of us leaving de-escalated the situation. So we stepped away. We flew out the next morning. And when we flew out, some of the last things that people were saying is, yeah, we're going to go kill somebody over this situation. And it was like, this is crazy. Like, normally you hear about this kind of stuff when the gospel is presented and Satan is in their work and trying to destroy the truth that's there. But we hadn't even, nobody had even learned the language yet. Um, so we went back. We went back to the center, and we just had to ask the question, Lord, what are we, what are we supposed to do? What do you want us to do in this? Do we need to go find new partners, which is going to take years and years and years, and try to keep learning the language, which is going to take years? This question is just too big for us. Like, that's not something we could answer. And so we reached out to our churches here. We reached out to leadership in PNG. We reached out to local church leaders um, and asked, guys, what should we do? And unanimously, everybody said, it's time to go. It's time to step out. We actually got the, the stereotypical, like, we make jokes about it, but we got somebody said, hey, I was just reading, before I read your email, that passage that says, dust the... The, or, or shake the dust off your feet. And it was like, well, that's, and he, he said, is that ironic? Coincidence? You know, it's like, and that was one of the elders from our home church in Washington. Another pastor sent us a passage from 2 Corinthians, which basically talks about Paul having an open door, and then he couldn't find Silas, and he just didn't feel right about it, so he didn't go to Macedonia. He continued on, even though he had an open door, and that's what he sent to us, and it was like, whoa, just unanimous. And the local church leaders who know the culture better than any of us expat missionaries said, yeah, we'd get out of there. My teammate asked him, would you send your own missionaries there? He said, no, we wouldn't send our own missionaries. We've heard about these people. We have family who lives with these people. We wouldn't send our own missionaries there. They don't want the gospel. They're not ready for the gospel. So with all of that, we decided to step out of the Bali work. Uh, we had to make that decision. Uh, which was not our favorite thing. Nobody goes anywhere in ministry with the plan of not finishing what they started. Like, we didn't join the team going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go five years, and then I'll be done. It doesn't matter what's going on. Like, that was not our plan, and that was very, very hard. That was very challenging. Um, and then after that, we had to, to figure out how to shut things down, and there was just a lot of stress and a lot of tension, and a lot of stuff came up circumstantially um, that came up. 
that really just put us in a bad place again. And so how do we end up back in the U.S. after all of that? Well, during that time after we stepped out, there was a couple months my wife ended up severing a tendon in her hand, cutting cabbage, uh, which she was the first one to go, this is a mercy from God. Because in order to get that fixed, we had to come back to the U.S. So it's strange to think of a severed tendon as a mercy from God. But the cool thing about a hand tendon is like you have like three months maximum to get it fixed. Otherwise, you're kind of stuck. So it was like we have to make a decision very, very quickly. And so we decided, you know what? We're at a place we can. We're going to go home. And during that time, too, my dad had passed away. So it's like just add loss upon loss with that. And because of the tendon being cut and different circumstances, I was able to make it back for my dad's memorial. We arrived the night before. I was able to be there because it's like if there's one thing in this world that only happens once is someone passing away. So it was kind of a big deal to be there for me. So I was very, I would just, I don't know, it was like confirmation almost. Um, so after that, we're here. We don't know what we're doing. I, I thought I was done with ministry. I was like, I was pretty, pretty burned out. I was pretty tired from that whole situation and loss. Um, but the Lord was faithful and just being humble underneath that. I was out working on a garden, my mom's garden, trying to tidy that up. Uh, and just, you know, the Lord met me as I was digging dirt, you know, and just really was like, no, just keep going. And then I had a buddy who worked at the Bible school Ethnos Bible Institute in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and he said, why don't you come here? I told him, how about you get me a real invitation? Because he just works in maintenance, and he did. He went and he talked to leadership. <laughs> I was like, okay. You know, he got me the real invitation, and, and Hannah will attest to this. When he got me the invitation, I was like, oh, I don't want to go up there. Like, I wasn't actually serious about, you know, doing that, but Hannah encouraged me. She was like, no, you should go check it out. So I went up there and I checked it out. And during that time, it was like, I don't want to just hunt for a ministry job. I could hunt for a ministry job. But that's like, why don't I just hunt for a normal job where I'll get paid better and I'll have more freedom in different areas? You know, it's like, if I'm going to sell myself, I might as well get some money out of it or something, you know? Um, but that was, my, that was the challenge that I was at. I don't want to sell myself to a church or to another, to another organization or get another job. And I was just challenged by the way I saw Stephen chosen. In Acts, right, there's this need that arises to feed, I think it's the Gentile widows, there's just not enough people doing it, and the apostles are like, well, that's not what our job is, so go find some faithful men. So it was someone else who was looking out, who knew the need and was looking out, and they said, Stephen, you're a faithful man, why don't you come in and help us with this? We know how that story ends, he was a faithful man, all the way to the end. And my friend in, in Waukesha did that. Um... (laughs) so we have confirmation that that's what the Lord had for us at that time, you know, that we should go there for a time. And we committed to two years there because this guy knew me. He had seen me in some down times and some up times. We had a lot of history, and he said, okay, like, come here. This would be a good fit. Come for a couple years. No big deal, you know? And so we were like, all right. And so that's where we're at now. The school checked us out. We checked the school out, and they gave us an invitation. So we joined the staff there uh, in August. So we've not been there a year yet. We've committed to two years. Um, our home church said we think two years will be good, and then after that we'll, we'll see what's going on. Um, but when does this normally end? One o'clock. <laughs> All right. Yes. 
Okay. I told I told Dan I was going to be quick, but we got started telling stories, so um, I do have notes. So I'm actually reading from notes, but yeah. Um, but in all of this, it's been a huge struggle, uh, and and I'm just gonna I'm gonna go through this. It's it's just have one thing I want to touch on, and then we have a video to talk about what we're doing at the Bible School. Um, but as we came back and we left this tribal work, the question of what is success is there, right? Within the culture that we're in, finishing is success. Staying is success. Seeing a church planted is success. And we did not do that. So does that make us failures? Does that make us less worthy? Or is there something wrong with us? Did we do something wrong? Like asking all these questions. I mean, when we came off, we're feeling this. We're feeling guilty. We're feeling ashamed that we didn't finish, that we, we chose to leave. We had always said, unless God takes us out of the work, we're not going to leave. But then we're faced with this situation where everybody else is saying it's time to go, and we had to make the choice. We said, I'm going to choose to leave, even though we could stay, but we see consequence in us staying. So many things went into that. But facing, what is success? That's a hard one because there's so many different inputs that we get from that. What does the world define as success, right? Money, power, fame, fortune, house. I mean, nowadays, there's so much more. You, you have incredible experience. You don't have a job, but you live out in the woods. You know, it's like, whoa, good for you, you know? Um, it, 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 it changes. Uh, what does the church define as success? Like, maybe that's stepping on toes, but sometimes the church, you know, not Pastor Dan, he wouldn't do that. But, you know, it's like, can set some things without even recognizing that makes you feel like, oh, this is, if I feel good every time I read my Bible, that's success. That means I've arrived. Or if I have an answer for everything, that means I've arrived. That's success. Or you're in ministry, or you want a soul, or, I mean, we could go on and on, right? And they're not necessarily bad things. I'm not saying they're bad things. But is that what success, is that how you define success by the things that you're doing in the church, doing for God? Then the next level, individually, right? Without even recognizing it, what are the things that are in place in our own hearts and our own minds that we define? Those expectations. My expectation was I'm going to finish. Not just that, but I'm going to rock and roll. I'm going to be awesome at this. And then to get over there and struggle and flounder, you know, and have a hard time. And in my mind, oh, I'm a failure. Like, I can't do this? What in the world? That's not what I was expecting. That's not what I was trying to achieve. I wasn't expecting to struggle in this way, you know? It's kind of, on a funny side note, I've taken some of those, like, strength finders tests. Someone was like, you should take this. Come to find out the things that I, like, valued the highest and I thought I had. I'm like, no, they're, like, way down here. Like, I'm not that guy, which was not my favorite thing to learn, you know? But it's like we have those expectations for ourselves or those ideas, you know? Like every fisherman goes out expecting to catch a fish. Are you successful if you catch a fish or not? You know, it's like, well, in some degrees you're not. But wasn't the purpose to just go out and, you know, maybe that's a bad analogy. I don't know. Sorry. But then it's like, all right, how does God define success? What do we see in Scripture? What do we see the examples for success? Because I tell you what, the examples I see in Scripture are terrible. They're terrible. Adam and Eve, good job, guys. You did a good job. 
No, there's some failure. There were some mistakes there, but yet God still saw them as good. God still loved them. God still cared for them, right? We could go through every story in the Bible basically is a story of people being dumb or people trying and not doing a very good job. And yet God, for whatever reason, is not disturbed by that. He's not, you know, struggling to keep up. Think of Abraham. All those times he went into these different towns and he's like, no, that's not my wife. That's my sister. Like, that's weird. Having uh, Ishmael, you know, with the servant. It's like, that wasn't, that was outside of what God wanted. He tried to do it in his own power. And yet God still used him, right? Israel, do I need to say more? Seriously, like there's books about Israel and how much they messed up. And we're talking, that's, we're talking sin and stuff. We're talking big issues, not just I couldn't complete the task that I wanted, you know? We're talking big things that in this day and age would disqualify people from ministry for the rest of their lives. Disqualify people. People would be angry at you. You would have huge issues. And yet, for whatever reason, God kept going back. He kept not going back. He never left, right? David, man after God's own heart. He got proud, numbered his people. How many people died when he did that, right? And then he saw a woman took the woman, murdered her husband, right? And then Jesus comes from that line. It's like, okay, that's a pretty big blessing. That's a pretty big, like, namesake or, yeah. Peter, he's got a big mouth. He's saying a lot of dumb things. He runs away, right? And yet, is so used. Paul, we, like, idolize Paul in a lot of ways, especially in the mission world, but the guy was a murderer, right? He, like, was right there as they stoned Stephen. I only imagine being like, amen, yes, yes, this guy is crazy, right? And we have contemporary examples. You just think, I, I was trying to think of names and stuff, but, like, historical mission work, where these guys went out and they toiled for years and years and years and years, and it wasn't until after they die and years go by that something comes up. And these guys felt like failures. And they, they just continued on. So it's like, how do we define God's definition of success? And the way I would define it and what I see is faithfulness. Each of these instances that I've described, these people messed up. But what did they do? They came back, they humbled themselves, and they continued walking in relationship with God. And God continued walking with them. And we see that with, with these other things where it's like we forget the idea when it comes to evangelism, to ministry, that there are those who till and plant and water and some who reap. And there are some who get to participate in a few of those. And so as we look at Bali, we think of, man, I don't know what God is going to do. I don't know what God is going to do with those nine years of what seemed to be unfruitful, unproductive ministry work. And we got to be a part of that little bit. But I believe he's going to do something with that. Even if it's in the sense of these guys have zero ability to make excuse before him. We know they can't. But somebody was mentioning that as we were talking with them. They were like, even in the sense of this was their last chance. And when they stand before God, God's going to be like, you guys had so many opportunities. 
and you you squandered it. But I don't think that's the case because I, I mean, Bali still has a special place in my heart. We love those people. We want them to know uh, Christ and understand him. And, and I think I even talked about it last time here. They have so much opportunity without expat missionaries there. They live close enough to town, and there's churches in town. They can connect there. They actually have people from their language group who live far away in different language groups who are believers. All it would take is for them to get to a place where they're able to go back and share with their own people. It's possible. There's an island, 45-minute boat right away. Complete opposite of the Bali people. Bali people are aggressive, rude, violent people. The island next door, they're kind, peaceful, quiet people. And I'm pretty sure they're related to each other somehow way back in the day because they're so close together. But there are plans to potentially send missionaries there. There's people on the island there who are believers already. So the, And the languages are close enough and there's enough interaction between the two islands that we have hope that the Bali people, apart from us, will hear the gospel clearly. There's a lot of religion on the island, but they don't know the gospel clearly. So we have hope for that. So all of that, and we're at a Bible school. All that was going on, we're at a Bible school now. Um, How does that play in? How does that impact? Is that still a big picture? Are we still missionaries? Um, I think we answered most of those questions in our video. So we'll just roll the video, and uh, I'll get up 